interrupt our program to bring you this important message. the man-made monster cast i am rob 138 and here we are with episode four is it four four four, four old school horseman style um that's all for all our wrestling nerds out there um man who would who would have thought we'd made it this far you know started from the bottom now we're here papa snake what's the word my friend mockingbird ah mockingbird i thought it was just regular bird i'm a ramones fan so Getting into things today, there's a couple things I want to start off with. Um, some some plugs, some plugs. We don't usually do plugs, but we're doing plugs. I got a couple things. Um, talking to my friends over the Extra Sauce and Peanut Butter podcast, uh, we're probably going to get together and do something soon here. I believe I'll be on to talk about some horror flicks. Um, it's a funny podcast, but I will caution anyone without thick skin that are easily offended, do not go listen to this podcast. Um, but if you like crude humor, like I do, um, head on over, man. They're funny, funny guys, except for Joe. Joe sucks. Um, also, I'm working on setting up some interviews soon uh, for the MonsterCast here. One is with a developer of an upcoming indie horror RPG called Fear of the Unknown. We spoke earlier this week. I won't speak any more to that until I hammer down a date. I'm also working on getting Nikki from the premier haunted attraction in New Hampshire, Haunted Overload, on the show. Uh, Nikki is also a wildlife handler and activist for Curious Creatures, amongst other things, which is kind of how we started talking with a ill-timed uh, joke <laughs> about Alligator 3 3D. Uh, that movie does not actually exist. Um, what else? Let's see. We are on Patreon now. Uh, it's not required for anybody, uh, but it's certainly appreciated. Uh, currently, there's three tiers, two of which involve buying me a coffee. Uh, beyond that, I think we should just head straight on into sharing a scare. I don't have a fucking thing for it still. All right. I planned on doing it. Stank, I planned on doing it. I just, it's been a busy. Uh, it's been a busy week. A busy couple of weeks. I mean, I made some steps. I made some steps. Uh, I got some kids. That sounds really fucked up. Uh, I procured some children. Still weird. Yeah, just stop. Where you, stop where you're headed. What you got, bud? <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. Got this weird bug up my ass the other day. and Oh, I might want to go to a doctor for that, pal. No, it's fine. It, it'll live there for a little while. Fair enough. Uh, I actually watched the House on Haunted Hill remake from back around, what was it, like 99 or so? Hmm. And honestly... I like it more now than I did back then. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, oh, God, what was the actor's name? Uh, Jeffrey Price? No, it was Stephen Price. Uh, is he did the play, um, what's his What's his name in um, uh, Pirates? Yeah. Jeffrey Rush? Yes, Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey Rush killed it in that movie. Yeah, he, he was probably the best part of the whole thing. It's funny that you, that you mentioned that, pal. I was actually just talking to uh, the lovely Beth, who did our Frankie... And our, I have to correct myself here, our Yokagi on uh, Kaiju Cast, I called him Tukagi because I was thinking about New Japan Pro Wrestling at the time. We, we were talking about that the other day. Uh, we, I, she has a deep appreciation of that film as well as the remake of 13 Ghosts. And so, because I think they came out around the same time or they're by the same production company. Both those remakes are solid, dude. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's something about that time period for horror, like The Final Destination, 13 Ghosts, um, House on the Haunted Hill, like. There was a feel, just like you know, the '80s had a feel, '70s had a feel. Like the '90s really did have a feel, and it was, it was lighter, brighter. It wasn't as in your face, but they still pulled off some great stuff. Oh, and uh, Jeffrey Combs being in it too, and KMB effects did all the uh, work on that. Yeah, there were a couple gems in the '90s, man. Um, that those two films being one of them. Obviously, Scream is incredible. We we both have deep love for Scream. Not so much on I know what you did last summer, like. First one's all right. Eh, I don't really know if that's kind of crap. Yeah. Um, 
Another good one from the 90s, I think it was the 90s, that uh, doesn't get a whole lot of love is, uh, I think it was Ghost Ship. Yes, that's a very solid movie. I think it's a, 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 is it a remake of Death Ship or something from the 70s? That I don't know. No, I'll have to look it up. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yep, and um, I revisited Vampire in Brooklyn. I got to watch that every so often. It's just such a solid movie. Eddie Murphy is so phenomenal in that. Angela Bassett just, it was just fun. Uh, we, we threw it on the other night, had some drinks, and was like, why haven't I watched this recently? Did you uh did you pretend that it was just a, a different Candyman movie going back to our episode on Candyman? I did not, but uh good pull. And then uh, of course we've been uh, trying to watch Stranger Things, but with the family life and things being really crazy the last few weeks with stuff going on personally. Um yeah, it's, we're not we're not done yet. We got about another episode left, but uh very solid season, really up the horror ante in the show. Um England makes a nice appearance and steals the scenes that he's in. Uh, I mean, if you haven't seen it, I'm not sure we've never really talked about it, but this season is really good. I haven't started the new season yet. Uh, I am a Stranger Things fan. I think uh, it's, it's a really great show. Um, yeah, I haven't started it yet. I was going to start it two days ago, and then I was going to start it last night, but life uh, finds a way to <laughs> get in the goddamn way. <laughs> and I have not started. I will probably binge the whole friggin' thing today. On on the topic of Robert England, though, uh, when this airs, it will be Robert England's birthday. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Robert England! Not that you will ever listen to this. Um, anything else, buddy? Yeah, that's more or less it. Um, Got to get my oil changed today. So uh, while we're waiting for it, my friend's taking me to a local brewery. I just want to do a quick little tour, just kill some time. Okay, well, the brewery's cool. That's that's something of note. Don't know why we need to talk about the oil change, but it's out in the universe now, and I hope it goes well for you. I thank you. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I've, I've had to put way too much money out in the last few days on a bunch of shit that just broke, so. Yeah, and you know, that's what that's what tends to happen when something breaks, everything fucking breaks. So, speaking of breaking, um, I continue my downward spiral of breaking down physically and mentally. Uh, a lot of doctor stuff going on these past couple of weeks. Uh I've tried to be as active as I can on our social medias. Um, without getting too much into it, uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel for now, uh, possibly a train, probably a train, if we're being honest. And I return to active duty at my job on Monday, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. I've missed everyone terribly there. And I don't talk about my personal life on here a lot and there's, because it's not that, you know, we're not here for that. But I'm pretty excited about it. Um, beyond that, been watching a lot of 70s, 80s exploitation kind of sleaze flicks. Um, specifically, like I just watched a 1990 Bronx Warrior, which is like a fucking terrible ripoff, but it's a great ripoff of Escape from New York. Uh, just last night, I watched She Wolves of the Wasteland, uh, which is, imagine like Bad Mad Max movie, but like it's all like 80s pinups or like Playmates. Yeah, it's very sleazy. It's uh, terrible. It's I mean I mean that sincerely though. Like it's not good, terrible. It's not endearing, terrible. It's just fucking bad. Um, <laughs> I've also been watching like a lot of anime lately. I've really gotten into uh, uh, Hideki Anno's Neon Genesis Evangelion. So that's awesome. I have no idea. I'm not an anime guy. It's okay. It's okay. Um, Perspective, but it's just not into it. Been further going down my my Tokusatsu rabbit hole. Uh, which I, I'll probably talk more about on Kaiju Cast. Uh, and my uh, a couple of weeks ago, my Conan, uh, the board game Kickstarter from Monolith Games, finally came in. Nice. I backed this Kickstarter two and a half years ago. And it's finally here. And I feel bad for the other backers because the uh, shipping company that they got for the U.S. distribution is just the drizzling shits. And a lot of people still don't have their board game. Man. I don't want to talk about the money that I put into this Kickstarter, but it was it's not a small amount. And the fact that we missed five deadlines uh, for the ship, for like the shipping and completion of everything is just disgusting. Anyway, it's B-Movie Month here on the Man-Made Monster Cast. Um, so we, we, we got to start with the, the king of the B-Movies, right? I'm referring directly to Roger Corman. Yes. The, absolute king oh, he's i mean i don't even know how many movies he's got under his belt i actually did not research a lot of corman stuff for this episode just because we'll probably wind up doing some sort of corman centric episode in the future yeah i'm down with it yeah so we're doing uh friggin forbidden planet nope 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 we're doing forbidden world 
Ah, you kept calling me out on it. It's so easy, isn't it? Hold on. I got to fix something here. Hold on. This would be great. World. <laughs> that is going to be on the video. That's awesome. Right, so I have a I have a new overlay for our YouTube content and under to now showing Marky and I had Forbidden Planet on there and I just changed it to Forbidden World. <laughs> Dude, I've been doing that like while I've been texting you about this. I've been acting like that's not the movie, Forbidden World. <laughs> like Forbidden Planet is the Leslie Nielsen sci-fi like 50 sci-fi flick that I just adore. Um so anyway, <laughs> it's being movie month. <laughs> Here on the man-made monster gas, we're doing Roger Corman forbidden world um so let's just get right into it my man yeah what we got forbidden world was released on may 7th 1982 is a film produced by roger corman it was directed by alan holzman forbidden world tells the story of a space federation marshal who lands on a remote planet where a research crew is working on a genetic experiment which then gets lost and terrorizes all of them um, director Alan Holzman graduated the American Film Institute in the early 70s and began working as an editor for Roger Corman's New World Pictures. He had credits in other Corman flicks such as Candy Stripe Nurses, Crazy Mama, and Battle Beyond the Stars. Holzman, however, had bigger aspirations and one day showed Corman a film that he shot, hoping that he could become a director for Corman. Uh, apparently, upon viewing the film, Corman fell asleep. Yeah. Afterwards, Holzman, who had a terrible stuttering affliction, tried to ask Corman if he could direct, but he couldn't get the words out. And Corman just kind of very politely thanked him for his time and wished him well. Just that was the end of that meeting. Yeah. Holzman continued editing, which uh, led to his editing job on Battle Beyond the Stars. The importance of this gig is they were having issues with their front screen projection, was which was relatively new at the time. Um, in typical Corman fashion. He ordered Holzman to just make it work. Corman infamously does not reshoot anything. On his way back to the soundstage, Holzman came across someone working on some incredible front screen slides. He called Corman and told him that they had to hire this guy immediately. The person in question was Mr. James Cameron. The James Cameron. It's amazing who Corman actually had working on some of his movies. Dude, I mean, he, he wants several. I mean, Francis Ford Coppola. Right. Yeah. yeah, he launched several, several careers that you would never think that, oh, uh -huh. I worked on Corman flicks. <laughs> Cameron would also later go on to work on Corman's Galaxy of Terror. Um, Corman was impressed with Halsman's work and asked if his stuttering would hinder his becoming a director, to which Halsman told him that he stuttered less when he was directing. I think his, his actual words were when he's in charge. Um, I found the quote after I, I wrote this down, but regardless. Um, so another famous editor turned director of Roger Corman, Joe Dante. Corman brought Holzman on to do some second unit work for Firecracker, as well as his Smokey and the Bandit knockoff, Smokey Bites the Dust, uh, which I have not seen. I don't know if you have, but no. now that I'm aware of its existence, I have to track it down because I love Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> uh, while Holzman was doing that, Corman was visiting the set of Galaxy of Terror. Corman was impressed with Cameron's set design and wanted to get more use out of the sets. So he called Holzman and he told him that he would give him two actors and a set to write, direct, film, and edit a seven-minute opening for a space movie. And he had to do it all in one day. Uh, if he could do this, he would give him his own movie. He told Holzman that if he needed any inspiration that he always wanted to do, Lawrence of Arabia in space. So anybody that has a problem with Jason X can suck one because we got Lawrence of Arabia in space, or at least we tried to get it. Right. Not what it ultimately turned out to be. Uh, the finished product had Jesse Vint, who also played in Corman's death sport, waking up from a cryo sleep only to be informed by his Lego stormtrooper looking robot co-pilot played by Don uh, Oliveira that they were under attack. The, this reused footage from Battle Beyond the Stars um, mainly because Holzman didn't have time for VFX. Uh, Corman dug it, gave him a job as a director. Holzman, working with the Lawrence of Arabia and space motif, wrote several drafts, but all were deemed too expensive by Corman, who eventually told Holzman, and I quote, just rip off Alien. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Uh, Jim Wynarski was hired to pen the treatment, which was based on Corman's 1957 film, Attack of the Crab Monsters, 
which itself was a ripoff of 1951's so A Thing from Another World. Right. I got to say, I'm the dude playing a dude trying to be another dude. Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> basically. Um, so Forbidden World's kind of, you know, a ripoff of a movie whose story is based on a ripoff of another movie. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, basically. Um, also, uh, The Thing from Another World will later have a remake, not a ripoff, John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, Tim Kernan, who had no prior uh, writing credits that I could find, was then brought on to write the screenplay, and the title that they settled on was Mutant. Which sounds so much more B-movie than Forbidden World. I... Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, you know, yeah, we'll get into it later, but you can actually still you can see Mutant. Uh, it's a different okay. film. Uh, I don't know entirely. I've never seen it, but it's a different film. Um, as far as the effects team goes, Stank, what you got, buddy? The Skotek brothers, uh, Robert and Dennis, were brought on to design a mutant work on the miniatures, which actually the miniatures were not bad. Yeah, I, I highly enjoyed a lot of that work. Yeah. Uh, the brothers have previously worked on Battle Beyond the Stars and Galaxy of Terror and wound up working on a full-size mutant, which reused parts of the giant maggot in the Galaxy of Terror, which I read into. And uh, what that maggot apparently does to people is quite creepy. Yeah. Have you seen Galaxy of Terror? No, that's uh, that's on my agenda now. After okay, well, we're going to do it for the next one. Fuck it. Let's double down. Corman double feature. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you already here first, folks. John Carl Beekler was brought, <laughs> brought on for makeup effects. Beekler would go on to work on such genre-defying uh, films as Troll. Terror Vision, which was one of my suggestions. It was. Yes, I love that movie. It is awful. Uh, Hard Rock Zombies, From Beyond, Reanimator, Friday 13th Part 7, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, and Halloween 4. So kind of went pretty far there. Yeah, he hit the uh, the holy trinity of the slashers right at the end, didn't he? Right. So Holzman, upon reading the script, had wanted to make the film a horror comedy. Unfortunately for him, Corman hated comedies. Like there's, he has a quote. I, I may still have it up on my. No, I restarted my computer. Damn it. Corman hates comedies, man. Um, I'm gonna paraphrase here. But most of his films are so funny. Uh, unintentionally. 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 I'm going to paraphrase here. If I remember the quote correctly, he said something to the effect of uh, a horror film is better because the crowd is always going to react to a scare. But comedies are, are not good because if the crowd doesn't laugh, the film is a failure. Which, you know, I, I guess I could see the logic in terms of people's you know unique senses of humor. A little bit. Yeah, I got you. Regardless, Holzman still tried to add some doses of humor here and there. Uh, and he kept it kind of hush-hush. At the first screening, Holzman, knowing that Corman would hate it if the audience laughed, actually got up and asked the audience not to laugh at the film. Corman loved this cut, except he hated Sam's voice and had Holzman redub it. Afterward, they scheduled a public screening, and the audience loved it. The audience reacted at all the right moments. Unfortunately, this also included some laughter. Corman was not happy and stormed to Holzman's seat in the theater. As he was talking to Holzman, an audience member belly laughed at a scene which caused Corman to slap the audience member in the face and insist that it was not funny and this was a very serious science fiction movie. Yep. Yeah. Apparently the audience member uh, threw his soda in Corman's face as a reaction to this. Afterwards, Corman told Holzman that it was the worst sneak preview he has ever had, but he can still save the movie. Holzman couldn't understand, and Corman had him cut all the scenes that the audience laughed at. At this point, Corman decided no one would know what a mutant is and renamed the film Forbidden World. The poster featured unused art from Galaxy of Terror depicting a bug monster that, in fact, is not in the film. Getting into the cast, in addition to Jesse Vint and Don Oliveira, June Chadwick was brought on to play Dr. Is it Glazer, I believe? I think so, yeah. Yeah, Glazer. Uh, I just I watched this like two days ago, and I always, when I read that, I want to say Glasser, but I, think, I believe it's Glazer. Chadwick's later credits would include roles in MacGyver, the A-Team, V, and most importantly, this is Spinal Tap. Dawn Dunlap was hired to play Tracy Baxter after the original actress dropped out two days before filming. Before they settled on Dunlap, they had considered bringing on an older former Playboy playmate due to the role requiring nudity. Fortunately, Dunlap was the perfect age for the role, and being a former model, she didn't mind the nudity. This brought up the question of what if an actor has an issue with the nudity, of which there is a lot of in this movie. 
I was pretty surprised at that. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I think it's a little more nudity than the, the normal Corman flick. Mm. So, um, so Holzman asked Corman, you know, what if an actor has an issue with this? And Corman then replied, "Then go to Hollywood Boulevard, find the ugliest prostitute that you can find, offer her ten dollars to come back to the studio, and tell the actress that that's her body double." Corman obviously said this thinking that the actors would then do the nude scene so the audience wouldn't think that they looked like that. That would never fly today. No, but that my first <laughs> thought was HR. Yeah. yeah, that wouldn't... I believe the, the Screen Actors Guild might have something to say about it as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the production had less money and a smaller crew than most of, the Corman, most of Corman's flicks, and it only had a four-week shooting schedule, and it reused different things from the prior two space movies that Corman had done. It was filmed in just 20 days and had a budget of everything that I read was below a million to up to a million. Yeah, but I mean, even even back then, that was still micro budget for what you consider Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it made uh, just over $4 million. It won Best Film and Best Visual Effects at a science fiction film festival in France, of which I could not find the name. It's oh. just the Science Fiction Film Festival of France, I suppose. Uh, it also received nominations at the 1983 Saturn Awards for Best Low-Budget Film, Best Makeup, and Best Special Effects. Yeah. Unfortunately, Holzman was upset with the final cut of the film because he felt it was no longer his vision and the edits made the film far too serious and felt that audiences were now laughing at the movie instead of with the movie. Big difference. I can see that. He actually kept his original cut of the film being mutant and refused to give it back to Corman until Corman threatened legal action. Holzman didn't want to return the cut because they thought Corman would just destroy it. So he called up Corman and they made a deal to donate the movie to UCLA. Holzman, however, did make a copy for himself, which was later released on, uh, who released the Blu-ray? I forget. Shout Factory. It was later released as a bonus feature on Shout Factory. Uh, Corman would offer Holzman another sci-fi movie, but Holzman would decline. Corman eventually went on to remake The Forbidden World under the title of Dead Space. Icy grip of fear by a weird biological mutation. Part alien, part human, all nightmare. Reproduce. This is an a priority high security research facility. Actually, it's a scientist's dream. Forbidden World 
We open on the aforementioned Lego Stormtrooper traveling through light speed before getting an emergency signal. The robot, whose name is Sam, goes and awakens Mike Colby from his cryo sleep, where he was having a dream about the entire plot of this movie. It, it threw me a little bit because I was like, what is he seeing? And as the movie progresses, you go, oh. I mean, it was a weird decision, but hey. I, 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 I'm going to mention it later because the movie ends the same way. Right. <laughs> you know, anyway, Sam informs him that there's a pack of, I thought he said Foo Bears. Maybe. Or Foo Bars. <laughs> Again, they said that they purposely messed up the, uh, the audio. Corman wanted right. it to be, you know, almost unintelligible at times, so. I will just say it's we'll say it's food bears. Uh, yeah, we'll bears are on their tail. Uh, Colby seems really uninterested in this and makes his way very slowly to the cockpit where they engage with the attacking ships. The lights then kick the shitter, and Colby asks for wire. Sam then quips that he is made of it. Colby gets it fixed and asks for uh, full throttle as the mothership begins its attack. There's a bunch of meaningless mumbo-jumbo about shields and igniting some sort of bolts and something about Sam talking about a fusion re- fusion reaction. It's, I don't know. Again, I think given that it was supposed to be a seven-minute intro, that there was no real context of the whole thing, it was probably just, hey, let's try to sound intelligent and get this out there. Well, mission critical failure. <laughs> uh, they then fire on the mothership. The editing here is just... Uh, you know, yeah, for a Holzman editing a bunch of Corman flicks, I'm just like, what? Like, what were you doing here? Um, probably should have had a warning for those who suffer from epilepsy, because this is definitely seizure-inducing. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, when you consider the rest of the score, Beethoven's Piano Concerto, yeah, Piano Concerto number one is playing through this opening scene, and it's kind of a weird choice. I imagine it's because that this may have been actually, I believe it was Holzman's uh, shot for the proof of concept, mm-hmm. the opening that basically got him the flick. Right. So, anyway, Sam tells Colby that they are being diverted to X Arbia, which was a nod toward a nod towards uh, Arabia and Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, Colby thought he was going home, and Sam kicks it into hyperspace with very little warning, possibly snapping Colby's neck. Roll the opening credits. Um, one thing about the opening credits here that I want to notice, Holzman purposefully listed Corman after the gratuitous shot of June Chadwick's ass um, as kind of a nod to Corman's quote-unquote style. Funny. So, Colby and Sam meet Gordon Hauser and Barbara Glazer. It, it Steps, it's Glazer, right? Yeah, Glazer. Yeah, we're just going to go with Glazer. Yeah, fuck it. Glazer. Glazer. Hey. He's got people <laughs> named Glazer and Glazer and all types of Azers. Nice. <laughs> We're full of references. Um, Sam greets them, but Colby turns Sam off and leaves them standing where exactly where they boarded because he's a real dickhead. Like, why? Or Sam. I don't understand why he did that. Like, why? What? <laughs> anyway, Hauser's giving some exposition regarding the entire plot, and Glazer says they do genetic research, uh, attempting to make an alternative food source. Colby walks into Tracy, and they make googly eyes at each other. Cut back to the docks, saying that they don't get too many new faces there. And Barbara then makes googly eyes at Colby and says, that's the truth. Let's talk about the, uh, the hallway here, bud. So it doesn't even take somebody looking into the film to just look and see what they are. And I think it's fantastic use that it's the modular forms on the walls of all the hallways. They're egg cartons, fast food, and takeout containers. I love that they didn't even paint them. They're just this typical white styrofoam. And to be honest, I like it. Like it, it creates a very odd effect. But I think I think it looks great. Yeah, that's also one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, it's in every scene, and you're going, "There it is! There it is!" You know, one thing that really annoys me about it is the top. So you know where the, the two tubings are going across the middle of the wall, right? Between the the styrofoam containers and the eggshells, mm-hmm. it bothers the shit out of me that they didn't tuck the lips that you use to like close the styrofoam containers under those foam tubes, they just left them on top. Like, you could totally hide that effect better if you just tuck them under. Yeah, but here's the thing, too. We're watching it in remastered full HD 
you know, on the platform we decided to watch it on, what did it look back look like back in the day on 35 millimeter on CRT TVs? I, I'm just saying, if I was set designer, and that's not a knock on Jim Cameron because he's definitely obviously knows much more shit than I do, I would have tucked those under. Sometimes you just got to tuck it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> gotcha. The three then step into some weird UV light stuff, which is supposed to kill all living things in their bodies. But not them. The line here is nothing messy in, nothing messy out. Then they enter a lab that is completely messy with a really messy doctor named... You missed some foreshadowing. When, uh, uh, God, when Colby goes, what about cancer? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I picked up on that. I just didn't write it down here. I'm surprised. I, I figured you would have thrown that one in there. Nah, you know, I think I meant to, but I was like multitasking at the time and just forgot. But, but no, yeah, I love it. I mean, it's also a nod to the end of the film. That's what I'm saying. Is you know, foreshadowing nod. Like, I well, like I mean, that. I mean, like this line of nothing messy in, nothing messy out. Like, exactly. That's the entrance in which Subject Twenty comes through. Anyway, exactly. spoiler. <laughs> um, they enter the lab, like I said, where everything is a complete disaster and a mess. They meet Cal Timberkin, Tim Timbargan. I thought they said Timber Timberton at first because that makes more sense. Right. But it's Timbergan, 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 who is the chief of bacteriology. And it is a real thing. Is it? Yes, it is. It sounds fake as shit. I'm like, he's the chief of namiology. I, I got you. But yeah, I looked it up because you put that in there. Is, is that a thing? And I'm like, actually, it is. It is the study of bacteria. I mean, that that checks out. That, that... It, but it does sound ludicrous. So it, if it was the study of, you know, ham sandwiches, it wouldn't make sense. It's OK, that's fine. It just sounds really fake. <laughs> uh, Timbergen says. They left the mess for him, and Hauser says that Subject 20 got loose. Let's talk about the lab here and the absolute state of disarray that it's in. Yeah, so looking into it, uh, majority of the animals in that were actually real dead animals that were acquired from a local pound. So I can only imagine the stench on that set. <laughs> yeah, but um, that's, that's literally the only way that they were able to pull that off. Otherwise, knowing Corman with the budget and everything, it would look like stuffed animals everywhere. So it, it's, it's really cool visuals, but it's just really gross how they ended up having to do it. Could you imagine if it was stuffed animals? I would probably have preferred it. Anyway, uh, they then take him to meet Subject 20, which is in an incubator. Uh, they say that Subject 20 put itself in the incubator. We get more exposition from the crew about it being a metamorph. Uh, we note here that Tim, Tim Bargon, <laughs> Tim Bergen, uh, keeps coughing a lot. Uh, they note that Subject 20 is in a cocoon, which is why it's all gooey. Colby wants to kill it immediately. I love the lines here. I've got a motto. If it moves and it's not one of us, shoot it. Brilliant. Just what we need. It's not that the line is good. It's the delivery is so fucking bad mm. that it just popped me, man. Oh, no, I got you. Uh, then Barbara drops the, give us a chance to fill you in. Wait one night. Mm. Yeah, that wasn't suggestive at all. So Colby obviously agrees because he wants the bone. Um, they then leave hapless Jimmy to clean up and guard the specimen. We then cut to Earl, who works security. Jimmy calls him and asks for Hauser, who literally just walked out of the door. He could just open the door and say, hey, Hauser, mm -hmm. uh, to tell him that Subject 20 is waking up. Jimmy opens the incubator, and we all know how this will go. There was a nice shot of, like, a gooey thing I guess the next metamorphosis of uh, Subject 20 dropping out of it um, and then Hauser sends Tracy down to check on Jimmy, Tracy being uh, Don Dunlap, Jimmy's girlfriend we head back down the styro hallway and as we go Subject 20, now in black goop form is attached to Jimmy's face Jimmy then destroys the entire room mm -hmm. trying to get this thing off his face uh, this is shown on a screen in the room where the entire goddamn crew is, but no one sees it. They instead talk about cake before giving more exposition about subject 20. They queue up information about proto B, whatever. <laughs> like just making shit up to make it sound good. It's like you watch this and you, you kind of wonder at this point, is there a script? <laughs> Are they were they just given like keywords and just said fucking make it up as you go <laughs> um i wanted to notate something here about the screens they're actually not video it's all like projections or it's just still images mm -hmm. 
in the place of monitors. There's no real monitors there. We find out that proto B was spliced with an animal or a vegetable or an animal or vegetable, maybe. We, uh, who knows? Then we find out about a uh, crew member uh, being Anne that died of death. Death got her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a, uh, yep. An alarm sounds, and we cut to Tracy finding Jimmy's body. The crew determined that the metamorph is gone and Jimmy is, in fact, still alive. The crew then search the room, and only the room, the very mm-hmm. small room. Uh, and Hauser says it could not have possibly gotten out. Uh, there's a really cool head prop here. Yes. Um, which, going back to, you know, Beekler and the effects team, like, the effects of the saving grace this this flick for the most part. Almost definitely. Yeah. Um, they move the body. Earl, the security guard who uh, absolutely rules here, drops my favorite line in the movie. He calls something a, quote, goddamn ding whopper. The crew thinks it got out. Hauser says he couldn't have. As they cut to Timmergan wheeling Johnny away. Hauser really sucks ass. Uh, he tells everyone to keep searching this 15 by 15 foot room, which I'm sure they have made a clean sweep of at this point. Timbergan is getting Jimmy's body to his lab. I get like a real Dr. Frankenstein feel mm-hmm. from Day of the Dead here. I don't know if it's just because he's crazy or dirty or both, but he just feels like Doc Frankenstein from Day of the Dead. No, I got you. Um, he then hooks a couple of vacuum cleaner hoses up to Jimmy, then leaves. Uh, there's a cool effect of something moving under the sheet. Mm-hmm. Timbergan finds Tracy and Barbara and says they should tell Colby about Anne, then says that they shouldn't and promptly leaves. Cool. Barbara tells Tracy to go get some rest, which is a segue for some nudity. This is a Corman flick after all. Subject 20 is watching uh, Tracy get changed from event, and I think it might be jerking off if it can. I mean, it's a black goop form at this point, but I don't know. There's a lot of liquid covering the camera all of a sudden, like it's uh, and the mood strikes. Yeah. So at this point, I realized that uh, Tracy, Don Dunlap, is also in the Barbarian Queen, which is one of my favorite flicks. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, we'll absolutely have to touch on that maybe in some form, in some way. Cut back to Hauser arguing with the crew. Everyone goes turn. Kobe finally turns Sam back on to ask if it's okay, and then turns it off immediately. So, cool. Glad Sam's in the movie. Uh, Barbara shows up looking thirsty, shit, and flirts with Kobe. So they go bang. While they're bumping uglies, Earl is watching. I love the line. I love the line when he goes into Barbara's room. Mm-hmm. Um, no, sir. I put you in number two. Like, like he's in a stop. And Earl's watching him playing with a yo-yo. Um, this was the only quote-unquote funny scene that was left in by Corman, only because it was, you know, interspliced with nudity. Right. Um, Brian, the other crew member, is playing a space saxophone here. The whole scene is really weird and really hilarious. Um, I like that the yo-yo and the saxophone are actually part of the music. Mm-hmm. I think you had different feelings about this scene. I, I, well, I just because the whole Earl thing, it was just it was borderline uncomfortable. Like it just something about it was just off and just odd. Well, but I mean, he was very deadpan. Like there were really tight shots of his face, and he's like sweating and super serious. Like right, that, that, I think that's what made it so uncomfortable. It was like, oof. yeah, very very odd. Odd indeed. Um, we also get our first exterior shot of the facility and the miniature, like we established earlier, the miniatures are awesome in this. Keeping with the, the scene here, I, I do want to talk about the score for a minute. I know that um, mm. you told me that you were a fan of it. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the score. It's probably, you know, with the effects, one of the saving graces of this film. Mm. The score was actually done by Holzman's girlfriend, right, uh, Susan Justin. Initially, the score was set to be something more traditional, but Holzman really wanted something more synth-heavy. Right, because um, he thought it fit the theme of the movie more. Uh, he suggested his girlfriend Susan, who also had credits on Firecracker, which Holzman also worked on, as well as one of my personal favorite Mad Max ripoffs, Striker. Uh, the New York Post would say that the score was the first punk rock space opera, and this is actually one of the only instances where a New World Pictures film received a soundtrack release. Did not know that until you brought that up, and. The sad part is, is from what I read now, strike me if this isn't right, that she really didn't go to do much more past what you just said. And it's a real shame because 
she was very good. Like she read the scenes well. She implemented the sound of everything. I highly enjoyed it. You know, it really set the movie, made it, made it feel bigger and more professional than it was. Yeah, so it's it's strange when, when you when you look at some of the people that worked on Roger Corman's films, because there is a virtual who's who of you know people in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of people that really didn't go on to do much of anything, where their, their credits are maybe four or five things. Um, you know, unfortunately, Susan here is one of them. I know that she had a, uh, I think it was like a moderately successful new wave band. Uh-huh. Um, but beyond that, she didn't really do much. And that's that's a shame because, I mean, she was good at her craft. Oh, yeah, definitely. So while Earl is playing with his yo-yo and watching the crew fuck, the crew, the whole crew is fucking. That would have been interesting. <laughs> and suddenly it's a porno. I mean, it might as well be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, he's watching uh, Barbara and Colby fuck. An alarm goes off and he goes to check it out. While he's looking around, there's like shots interspliced of the two still banging which is kind of weird i don't know if it was intended to be like that's what's going on now or if that's what earl's thinking about both yes yes <laughs> yes <laughs> is the correct answer i thought it was like what he was thinking about um mm. so yeah it's, it's all odd but this whole fucking movie's odd um earl's really strange kind of a strange bird he he takes something out of a locker i missed the name of the locker i thought it maybe it was Anne's. yeah i didn't see it either um, and he, anyway, he puts it in his locker. Uh, again, the sound design here is absolutely awesome. Um, we get a grunting kind of noise from event, and that would be the end of Earl at that point. He died doing what he loved, thinking of Barbara fucking some guy he doesn't know. Mm. We cut back to Timbergan's lab. He's chain smoking, and the effect on the corpse is really cool here. Let's talk about the corpse here, pal. Hey, so I noted something was that when they initially pulled the actor and put him on the table, it was actually the actor. It wasn't a dummy. But the, as you stated earlier, the head wound effect was really well done. But then when you get to the actual lab and it is a dummy corpse, uh, the corpse was actually from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, Bob Burns let Beekler borrow the skeleton to create the mold from. And they did a great job creating a likeness that looked a lot like the actor. But the depth in the wound was just excellent. It just looked so cool. I think that's what really made the effect pop for me was the actual the depth of the wound. I don't want to say more real because even though the, the the actual you know prop was exquisitely done, it just felt more visceral. Right. Yeah. Then just putting a you know at that point would have been latex or foam latex uh, appliance on the actor's face, which would have looked cool, but it wouldn't give give you that depth without building it out. So. Right. Um, I also wanted to quickly point out that Timberkin's lab is the same set as the control room. It's just lit differently. Hmm. Um. We then cut to Tracy, who's dressed like she's going to go sunbathing. Uh, quite the opposite, however. She's going to the sauna to get butt-ass naked. Also, why is she wearing sunglasses indoors? I'm actually doing that right now. Mm-hmm. So, far be it for me. Um, Subject 20 is watching her through the vents. And I'm not going to lie, I always kind of had a crush on Don Dunlap when I was younger. Um, from the first time I saw him, Barbarian Queen. Like, she mm-hmm. was um, a lot of Clarkson's like younger sister mm-hmm. and not as much as like a uh, barbarian more eh, I want to say timid's the word but anyway I she was awesome she's total babe um and I've just always kind of had a crush on her and I just want to throw mm-hmm. that out there <laughs> anyways uh Colby walks in <clears throat> she tells him to get out he tells her she's beautiful and stays she tells him to get out again and this is really predatory very much so. I, I agree with you no means fucking no period he says he came to Warner. She then says he looks like he could use a steam bath. He says he had a hard night. Uh, for you YouTube viewers, I just hard winked at the camera because he banged Barbara. That's why, mm-hmm. had, a, that's why he had a hard. Hard was the implication of his erection. It's he banged her let, friend. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> um, she then tells him to get naked because, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, get out. No. Okay, take your pants off. Well, that escalated quickly. Uh, this scene is only here for Tracy to be naked a lot. That's all. And listen, I'm not going to complain about it. Thon Thunlap is gorgeous, mm-hmm. but it's a weird scene. Anyway, subject, yeah, subject 20 is in the vent and uh, goose on Tracy's, like, was it her sunglasses? Yeah. Yeah. So whatever implication that may be. 
Uh, it falls out of the vent. Tracy screams and they split. Everyone comes out. They want to know why the two of them are naked. To which Barbara says, Explaining your scars, no doubt. <laughs> Hauser wants it caught. Colby wants it killed. It gets out. Colby comes up with a plan. And everyone says, fucking ding whopper here. And then they all fuck off. I love it. Yeah. I think we say fuck a lot more in this episode. Mm-hmm. I don't care. It's B-movie month, man. I can say fuck. Right. Barbara heads to the dock. Doc says it changes itself and it changes us. Back to Tracy. She wishes uh, Sam and Brian good luck. Sam comments them being dicks for turning them off and then only turning them back on when this shit hits the fan. The crew is suiting up and we got some exposition about the atmosphere. Back to Barb and Timbergen, we established that the sole purpose of the creature is to grow and reproduce. Some more exposition about what happened to Jimmy and how the creature works. The effects here are way cooler than they should be. Mm-hmm. It just looks good. I enjoy it. Uh, everything. It's on the floor, on the table. It just—I don't, I don't even know what it was made of. I couldn't find anything on it. It just looked. I t- it's awesome. just like random shit. Like I, so I read a, an interview with uh, was it Holzman? I believe it was Holzman, where they actually had like interns going to get some of these styrofoam containers out of dumpsters after like McDonald's would close. Because this is back when McDonald's just a styrofoam containers mm. for, for shit. Yeah, I read something about that too. I, that's just crazy. That's fucking disgusting. <laughs> they just have this like used hamburger shit hopefully they wiped them out Barbara asks why after the doc finishes his expo dump and he tells her to ask it why uh, that is a bit of foreshadowing hmm. we cut to the crew outside jump scare of Earl's mutilated body and that's that with Earl they move on quickly Hauser still wants alive Colby still wants dead uh, the things that are on their shoulders are meant to be cameras, which Jim Cameron would later use this idea for the Colonial Marines and Aliens, mm. the sequel to the movie that this is ripping off. So they find Subject 20 or a cocoon version of it. They fire on it, and it burns away. The line here is, it's empty. There's nothing in this damn thing. And that was a throwaway line because... Of the squid incident. Yes. So this is the actual only exterior shot of the film two filming locations total um, outside of the miniatures. So the initial exit from the facility is a parking lot to the studio they filmed at. They just threw a bunch of rocks and dirt on the ground to make it look like an alien planet. The other exterior shots were filmed at Vasquez Rocks and the whole shot was a bust there. Initially, they were set to go out to the costume designer announced they forgot the costumes. Nice. So they had to stop, go back to the studio, get the costumes, which are made out of. So from my research, the breathers are literally just like, painter's breathing masks so they're exactly what they are um the goggles are literally just swimming goggles painted so they are what they are and then like the head wraps are just scarves okay that works yeah so they like it's like they went to five below (laughs) and made the costumes so uh but during that scene when they were firing on the metamorph uh cocoon uh squids went off and ignited the mutant prop one of the effects teams yelled keep rolling knowing that the prop was going to burn away uh, so the thing about squibs are, you know, they're used very commonly in film, but they're very dangerous. So I, from what I understand, they're not used nearly as much. Um, you also have to be licensed for squibs. I myself never got licensed because I never wanted to deal with explosives on set. So I always used air squibs and pressure squibs. So basically just running tubes up to a spot and, you know, just a blast of air to create the same effect. Hell of a lot safer. But being that it uses a small explosive, there is fire. That spark ignited the the actual uh, prop. And that's when you see that random flaming cocoon after it falls. Because it wasn't on fire when it fell. But then all of a sudden, it's just there on fire. (laughs) So the funny thing about that is uh, Corman actually went and uh, after this happened, it spent about 20 minutes rewriting the scene which just was the line that there was nothing there as a throwaway. Mm-hmm. Um, because, well, I mean, what are you going to do? It's guerrilla filmmaking one-on-one, dude. What are you going to do? Your props went up. I guess we're fucking changing the movie. Right. So anyway, the, the crew are heading back and Subject 20 is waiting on them. It looks like a bad xenomorph head with a spider body, kind of, mm-hmm. um, with teeth. Uh, it jumps into the vent, but pops back up and kills Hauser. And goodbye, you fucking douche nozzle. Tracy looks up schematics to find out where the creature went. She can't find a fucking thing. While she's looking, something was kind of moving in the background. They established that it's in there with her. Um, This is very cool how the shot was set up with the movement Mm -hmm. in the background. Uh, Tracy turns 
uh, into Timrigan and Barb. They split down the egg carton hallway of despair. The entire crew hooks back up and are watching the computers in the control room. Brian babbles some random ass names for what the systems are called. Timbergen with Timbergen. Timbergen. Timbergen with some more exposition. He says that the metamorph is intelligent. Barb wants to communicate with it. Colby says that's some dumb shit. <laughs> he's not wrong, though. No, he's not. Uh, the metamorph itself moves to the med bay and is now eating Jimmy. Timbergen says it's making us into food and talks about making garden, which is a cool nod back to his garden of Eden line from earlier right. the film. Uh, he also points out the irony of what it's doing versus what they came there to do to begin with. Right. A mutated Hauser then shows up and grabs Tracy, who screams like a maniac. They finally reveal that the Metamorph is a genetic fusion of Proto-B and the former crewmate, Anne. They used her womb to grow it, which is pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. What the fuck is wrong with these people? Why would you do that? Make it even more fucked up. Yeah, she, she supposedly uh, volunteered, so... I, I don't still fucked up, but to make it even more fucked up, they used Hauser cells to fertilize the egg and then put it in Anne's uterus and then it hatched and killed her mm-hmm. in two weeks. Yeah. So that, that got real dark, real fucking quick. So anyway, now there's two chicks naked in the shower. But of course. Yeah. Because fucking Corman. <laughs> Reasons. Yeah. Barb is cleaning because this is this is how this cell anyone talks, let alone two ladies. Uh, let's not go sit in the office or at lunch. Let's get naked and hop in the shower and talk about what we're going to do. Barb is cleaning Tracy off. She theorizes that they should attempt to communicate with it and that if they keep attacking it, it will keep attacking them. She says they shouldn't tell the others. Now there's a wide shot so Cormac can get all of that full frontal nudity. She convinces Barb that they should communicate with it. Back with the fellows, they're trying to figure out how to kill it. And I think Brian is eating off of Sam's back here. Like an airplane tray, it looked like. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. Fucking Sam, dude, is just getting shit on this whole movie. But again, I, I opened with shitting on Sam, looking like a Lego Stormtrooper. That's fine. Uh, back to the ladies, traveling the hopeless hallway of doom and carry out. They get to the med bay, and Barb attempts to talk to the creature through a computer panel. This is now like a sleazy alien ripoff meets war games. Uh, but not for long. Barb gets killed cannibal holocaust style. Um June Chadwick was furious about the scene and actually refused to do it. Um, she actually got her agent involved. She said the, the way the script read was that she would be impaled through the stomach, not the vagina. She wanted a body double for the scene, but Corman said it was not in the budget. So I guess we're not going to Hollywood Boulevard for this one. <laughs> uh, she eventually caved and did the scene, but was absolutely pissed at Halsman for the rest of the shoot. Honestly, when you watch this particular scene, it seems more implied because of the framing of the shot. Like, it looks like it comes out of her back, and there's no real entrance other than you see it kind of, like, slink down the control panel, which I'm pretty sure there's a credit card swiper on. Uh, <laughs> and, like, touches her leg. I wasn't really aware that that's what was implied either, because I, I I watched it two and a half times, because I ended up falling asleep last night when I was trying to rewatch it just to, you know, be boned up on it. And every time I watched it, it just, to me, it looked like it just stabbed her in the back or in the stomach, like, you know, it was just a lot of blood flying from the rear. and Right. And I, th- I think the, you know, the, the only implication that you get is when it's the overhead shot and she's laying mm-hmm. there and the tail tentacle thing is like between her legs. But it's not like under her shirt or anything. It's just like between her legs. Yeah, I got you. So anyways, Tracy freaks out and takes off down the, cor- the corridor of fear and carry out. She finds Brian and Colby and says it got Barb. Tim Bargon tells Sam that he needs information. The gore scenes here are very cool. Mm. Uh, Sam asks how long Tim Bargon had cancer, and Tim Bargon turns Sam off and injects his own cell, his own cells with the one from Jimmy. The guys get to the creature who is sucking up Barb's clothes through its weird cocoon slit. Again, who, who knows? I mean, so the way it, it it's look like it looks like it's uh, it looks like it's lady parts. Yes, I, that, again, just just go with it. <laughs> uh, Brian says they can't shoot it because where it's uh, all cocooned over is the life support something or rather and some kind of transmitter. Uh, some shit he just made up, I guess. Right. But the, like the design of this ship sucks. <laughs> Back with Tim Bargon and Sam, Sam who is now on again. Um, they're destroying Jimmy's body to get rid of the food supply. They head back to Colby and Brian. Timbergen has a way to kill it. 
Brian is trying to fix the computer, but he's under the cocoon. This spells the end for Brian via acid piss, I think. Was it piss? Yeah. You sure? I mean, I, I, so when I was like reading up on it, I read multiple accounts that it's apparently urine, some sort of liquid bodily fluid that uh, allowed him to electrocute him. Okay. So he so. secreted acid piss on his leg and it killed him. Right. Timbergan says he's going to kill it, but it has to kill him first. The mutant, I think, grows a fist and punches him in the face. <laughs> they leave back down the hallway of hamburgers and into the decontamination room of milk crates. Uh, Tracy is on her own somewhere, and I forgot why, because I'm just aghast at most of the things happening here. Right. Timbergan explains his cancer to Colby and wants him to cut his cancer out and feed it to the mutant. Tracy is in the med bay for something, but stops when Jimmy's reacting to her being there. Jimmy grabs her and his hand falls off. His head fell off. <laughs> um, so anyway, she went to get morphine, apparently. Um, so Timbergan's going to talk Colby through a live surgery now with no morphine, apparently. Seems legit. They do a blade effect where he's going to cut his stomach open, and honestly, the blade effect looks better than the one in Pumpkinhead, which is kind of fucked up. Yeah, but it actually wasn't a bad effect. So yeah, I mean, it's not a hard effect to pull off unless you're, mm-hmm. you know, in pumpkin head. <laughs> uh, Tracy's running and screaming. Uh, she keeps running into the mutant at various turns, like very, like in very quick succession for some reason. I made a note there, like, how did the mutant know the ship better than she did? Also, how did it move so fast? Had it moved so fast being so large? And how many random corridors are there? It went to the school of Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers travel. Ah, there we go. Yes, they were the cartographers for the the uh, the mutant here. Watch Leslie Vernon, you'll, you'll understand. Exactly. We cut back to the boys. Um, Colby now has his hand inside Timbergan, and I imagine at this point the doctor probably should have died of blood loss, but he's still alive. Tracy shows up and injects the morphine. Uh, Colby pulls out the tumor. The doc is Kaputsky. But there's no time to mourn. The mutant metamorph thing is here. There's a struggle. Tracy starts throwing shit at it. Sam, I think, stabs it, then gets broken in half. R.I.P. Sam. Sam. Colby pretends to give a flying fuck. He treated Sam like shit this whole time. He kept turning him off. But now this is this is like, that's my pal. Anyway, that's the fire he needed. Uh, he and the metamorph square up. They throw some fists, and he force feeds it cancer. Um, gags a lot, and throws up. I think we've all been there. <laughs> It slumps over and it's just leaking everywhere, which again, I think we've all been there. So let's talk about the ending vomit effects here, pal. All right. So I was actually unaware of the material used because uh, all I could find on it was that the foaming effect or the liquid effect coming out of the mouth that the effects team and everybody on set was so fearful of because of potential chemical burns that they rigged the whole room in trash bags and put a hole in it for the camera. And then uh, you actually brought it to my attention that they use polyurethane foam, also known as polyfoam. I'm sitting here, somebody who uses polyfoam frequently going, why? So the reason being is polyfoam is a two-part foam. You use equal parts A and B per weight, per volume, depending on the one. You have what's called cold foams, polyfoams, blah, blah, blah. They can be various densities, hardnesses, but when they, when they start out as liquid, you know, you put like this much in, when they go together and you mix it, after about 30 seconds of the chemical reaction, you just see, and it just expands. The problem is, is once it cures, it's there. It's stuck to everything. You're not getting it off. So anything that it did touch is ruined. Um, you can pigment it. You can put dyes in it, which is what they did to make it that pink viscous look. But uh, I just thought it was interesting. So also came to my attention that the actor that played uh, Sam and one of the effects guys were the ones inside the actual monster with gloves and goggles and everything else on masks. Because again, it it does uh, excrete fumes that you should not breathe, pouring it out. The overall ending effect was great. In my opinion, the only downside is, is it was a one shot take because there was no cleaning that up. At first, my thought when I was talking to you about it was why would you be afraid of polyfoam? It's not that dangerous, but then I have gotten it on my skin in small amounts and luckily it never caused any burns, but again, it was in small amounts. The issue I had was that it was permanently on my skin for about two weeks and slowly had to peel layers of skin off to get it off. So either way, burning, melting, it's still not good. Yeah. 
And then also the noises that were made were because Karen G. Wilson had a microphone shoved down her throat to get those gargling, nasty noises. Yeah. Talk about committing yourself to the, uh, the part here. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, cool sound design here. Um, we get a recap of the entire movie in the same way that Colby dreamt it in the cryo sleep. Um, I do surmise that this was the pad, the runtime, since Corman cut so much of the original cut out. Um, right. Also, to get more noodly in, obviously, um, Colby and Tracy are left standing alone. I'm kind of surprised it didn't start fucking immediately. Um, we get shots of the aftermath in the room with a really cool ass synth banger playing in the background, and we mm. roll the credits. Papa Stank, what's your take, bro? I highly enjoyed it. As somebody who grew up on B monster horror movies, one of which, one of my favorite, because it was so long story short, my grandfather was one of the first people in our family to have one of the VHS VHS recorders. So he got a membership to a local uh, movies rental store and he would just go and rent movies and copy them, rent them and copy them. He didn't care what it was. It was horror, comedy, porn, anything that they had in the store. And he just, he just had, <laughs> just bookshelves of VHSs that, you know, back in then when you do it like SP and LP, you could get like four movies at low quality or one movie at high quality. And he'd have like four or five movies on one thing. And my cousins and I would just, we would just open it up. Oh, what's this? Put it in and just watch it. That's how I got introduced to Reanimator. But Terrorvision was one that just pulled it off, which uh, again, as we stated earlier, the one effects artist worked on Terrorvision. And I found a lot of parallels between those two films in terms of the monster. Um, if you've never seen it, I highly recommend that bad movie. Um, <clears throat> so with that in mind, from a B-movie standpoint, 10 out of 10. Fucking loved it. It was just fun. It, it hit all the cues of the awful giant monster that looks like a bad puppet. The bad but fun, good acting. The unintentional comedy. Everything 10 out of 10. And I was a movie probably about five out of 10 if you look at it that way but this is definitely going to be a uh, a continuous watch for me i'm going to have to revisit this once in a while i had too much fun with it yep you know, first i was surprised when you said you had never seen it um but i'm glad you brought up the the difference in ratings the as a b movie or as a like a movie you enjoy versus you know as a fucking like work of film um because i I came to a crossroads here with that. Like, how the fuck do I actually rate movies? Mm. <laughs> I feel like I, I usually rate them as a mixture of the actual film and my enjoyment of. Um, so how do I feel about this flick? Anybody that knows me knows that I prefer like trashy slot flicks over like the slick modern productions of today. Um, I think the movie does what it sets out to do. Um, which is mm. be a, a sleazy alien ripoff mm. to show nudity, to show gore. Um, this is actually kind of a tough one for me because I like I can't rate the film on its merit just based on how I kind of rate movies. Um, it doesn't do anything that Corman hadn't already done a thousand times over and done better. Mm. And it's certainly not his best sci-fi movie. Um, it's incredibly impressive from a low-budget standpoint and even more so because the director of the film had a disability. Um that he got through to, to make this film. Um, I think it's really middle of the road. Even for a B-movie, it's kind of middle of the road for me. Mm. Um, I think part of that is because I have the luxury of having seen Galaxy of Terror, Battle Beyond the Stars, and Star Crash, all B-sci-fi movies with, you know, Corman and Thatch, so they're all better movies. In my opinion, that brings the writing down for me. So I think I'd probably okay. give it a 6 out of 10, like, as a total, without having two separate ratings. As a total, like, I think it's a six out of 10. Um, if you're going to personal enjoyment, like I've, I've seen the movie a million times. I, I, I dig it. It's a fun movie, but I can't put it up there with things like Battle Beyond the Stars or Star Crash. Um, so I'm just thinking of it one rating and I think it's a six. Uh, mm. If anything, it's, that's for the sound design and the effects saving otherwise mm. Mm, kind of story. I want to interject one thing too. I read an article and I fully agree with it. The one thing that I liked about this movie had heart. The cast was fully committed. They might not have been the best actors, but you could tell that they were, they believed in what they were making. It, it wasn't just people going through the motions on set. Agreed. So I, 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 I think that gave me more appreciation for it because so many B movies, it just looks like my neighbor's kid is in the background. Like huh. sure. these actors really got into it and believed what they were making. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. I can see that. Um, in closing, I wanted to read a quote 
from Roger Corman that I think holds true to any of us mutants and freaks out there that are working on things in the genre, whether you're a filmmaker, a podcaster, a blogger, an author, etc. Um, quote, when you're talking horror or sci-fi, you're working in a genre that was that has loosely certain thematic elements, or you could even call them roles. But roles are there to be broken. I think that young filmmakers should go all the way back to the history of horror from silent films like Nosferatu and through to today's horror films. So they understand the history of horror films and what has been done. Understand that and add something new or original. So know where we come from and break every goddamn rule that you can to get where you want to be. I like it. With that, you can follow us on Twitter at MMMonsterCast, on Instagram, ManMadeMonsterCast, Facebook at ManMadeMonsterCast, Patreon at ManMadeMonsterCast. Where can they find you on social media, Stank? You can find me as uh, XPapa underscore StankX on most uh, Instagram, um, Twitter, and just under my name, Mark Wenger, on Facebook. You can find me at R0B underscore 138 on Twitter and at R0B138 on Instagram. As per usual, it has been an absolute pleasure, Stank, and we will see you in two weeks. We will catch on the flip side. <laughs>